From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Jules Lipoff. I'm an Associate Professor at Temple University in Philadelphia. Today, I'll be interviewing two people separately, Dr. Daniel Eisen and Dr. Todd Schlesinger, regarding their work on the guidelines of care for the management of actinic keratosis course that's now available in the AAD Learning Center. First up is Dr. Eisen. Dr. Eisen is professor and director of dermatologic surgery and head of the micrographic and dermatologic oncology fellowship program at the University of California Davis Medical Center. Dr. Eisen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's my delight. So reviewing this course and reviewing the the article published in JAD recently, there's a lot of interesting studies that have been done, and it's great to have it all coalesced into one place to really keep up with what we should be doing as clinical dermatologists. How would you say our understanding overall of treatment of actinic keratoses has changed over time? That's a great question. From my perspective, and it's just my perspective only, I would say that most of what we thought is come to be true. I mean, in the past, we kind of lacked evidence as to what worked, how well it worked, and what scenarios we should use it in. And and thanks to the work of many, many people on these various studies, we, we have a better understanding of that. But our knowledge in the past was that we thought if we treated actinic keratosis, that the instance of skin cancer would decrease. And, and there is some evidence to suggest that that is, in fact, the truth. So treatment of these these lesions is, is important for many of our patients. So recently, I've heard a lot more use of the term keratinocyte carcinoma. I wonder if you could comment on if that's a term that you favor or why or why not people use that term? I guess it depends on whether you're a lumper or a splitter. As you know, the most common types of cancers are basal cells or squamous cells. Some studies have suggested that actinic keratosis are associated with both the incidence of squamous cell and basal cell. And that's probably where the keratinocyte carcinoma term comes in, into play there. I don't mind it, but I prefer to, to separate out the, the skin cancers because they're different in their behaviors for sure. Maybe it just sounds a little better in some way than non-melanoma skin cancer, since that's defining something by what it's not. But I guess maybe tomato, tomato, some people prefer different terms. That's just the way things are in dermatology. So I guess, as you highlighted just a moment ago, our goal in treating actinic keratosis is presumably to prevent skin cancer from developing. And there may be some evidence that that actually happens. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions that we have as dermatologists or in the public about AKs? Let me address the public one first. That's an easy one. Biggest misconception is that these things are actually full-blown cancers or melanomas and you know, you ask a patient, do you have a history of skin cancer? They're like, yeah, I had like 10 melanomas treated last year. And you're like, whoa, that's a lot. And you go back and look in the records and they had a bunch of AKs frozen. Not to diminish the importance of, of AKs, but it's certainly not the same thing as, as having a melanoma treated. And you know, patients also think that you're using a, a laser, you're burning the things off of them, all sorts of different things. And what that shows me is that I'm not doing as good a job as I should at educating my patients or our specialty in general as to what these things are and, and their importance and what treatments they've had. In terms of misconceptions from other dermatologists, now that's hard to say, right? 
I haven't talked to many dermatologists who don't seem to have a good sound grasp of what an actinic keratosis is. So my anecdotal experience would be that I don't think we have many misconceptions about them at all, but you know, everybody's opinions on them may, may vary. I mean, if you look at uh, Ackerman, he used to label all actinic keratosis as squamous cell carcinomas. It's probably a little bit far from what the norm is, but in what's the norm today, it's hard to gauge without a, an official survey or something, you know, but I, I think most of us have a good grasp of what these are and how they should be treated. So sort of following up on that Ackerman perspective, you know, we, we commonly, when we talk to patients, refer to as AKs as precancers. And sometimes I'm conflicted about uh, that term because, you know, we, as far as my understanding is AKs are not obligate precursors for skin cancer, but what person in their right mind would consider not treating a precancer? So do you have any feelings about using that term? You know, I can see both sides of the of that viewpoint there. I mean, on one hand, you, it kind of seems a little bit alarmist and you might be worrying people needlessly. But on the other hand, you know, more than half of squamous cell carcinomas have an associated actinic keratosis. And the dysplasia process is probably the same for both lesions, right? It's just, just AK has less mutations than the squamous cell carcinoma. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't get worked up by either either end of that spectrum there. I just, I myself do use the term precancer. I just think it's easier to explain to patients. It's a simple kind of term. You have this lesion, it could turn cancerous, but it might not. And that's kind of how I explain it or, or go through it with patients. It's, it's not like I say, you have this thing and it's 100% guaranteed to turn into a cancer. I think that's reasonable. I guess I personally take a little more issue with calling atypical nevi pre-melanomas compared <laughs> to AKs pre-cancers, but that's not really our focus today. We're focusing on the keratinocyte, but what's trying to lead more to talking about the guidelines, which is the main reason we're talking today. You know, we can, I want to ask you some questions about, you know, lesion versus field therapy and that sort of thing, but more practically, I'm wondering just maybe how you personally or how the recommendation should go for how we follow up patients who have many AKs or maybe just a few. For instance, if I'm freezing like 15 or 20 in someone, I'm probably going to ask them to come back and say three months. Whereas if someone has like a couple, I'll probably say just come back for a yearly check. Does that seem like a reasonable approach or how would you recommend? Yeah, I, th I think our approaches are very similar, but every patient is different, right? And I've had people who should be bathing in, in 5-FU, but they absolutely refuse to do it because they've done it once, they had a bad experience, and doc, just freeze those things. I don't care if you've got to freeze 50 of them. And, you know, that's what works well for that particular patient. W would they be better off with topical 5-FU? Probably, but they're better off with just liquid nitrogen if they're not willing to do anything else, then, you know, you, you do what you can, right? So you're hinting at how we have some general guidelines for people as a whole, but obviously every patient is an individual and you have to tailor everything to your patient in front of you. But let's say without any more information, when do you consider just treating individual lesions versus adding a field therapy in? Yeah, I think it's just like you said before, if you just have a few scattered lesions here and there, 
I'm much more likely to freeze them. It's it's fast, it's effective. Patient doesn't need to return. I'm not gonna get the follow-up phone call saying my skin is peeling off, this can't possibly be right. Or if they're more hyperkeratotic, so the topicals in my experience, same thing with PDT, don't tend to work as well with the hyperkeratotic lesions as the cryotherapy does. That's the scenario that I usually prefer the cryo to. From the guidelines, there was some review of different field therapies using things like 5-FU and imiquimod in particular, which seem to have the greatest evidence, but other things like photodynamic therapy. What is currently recommended for most dermatologists? So the guidelines don't really address, you know, it's not really an algorithm, right? It's not like you have this patient with this scenario, this is what you should do, right? It's it's like, these are the studies that have been done. Treatment A is the better than treatment B maybe in this one possibility, or maybe there's no difference or, you know, there's no recommendation because there's insufficient evidence. So that's the kind of thing that the guidelines address, not really like you must treat this way. As we were discussing before, every patient is different. And even when I find treatments, I'm like, boy, I would almost never use this particular thing. There's always some sort of situation where eventually you end up doing something where you don't think you would use it, use something, right? I mean, you see more people, you, you have more different scenarios. I didn't mean to try to corner you into saying you have to do one way or another, but I guess sometimes we are in isolation in our practices and we kind of just assume most people do the same thing, but don't know for sure, right? But are there head-to-head studies comparing, say, 5-FU or amicomod, or how would you choose between those two if you're looking for a topical therapy? Right. So, I mean, the treatment details are different, right? I mean, the five FU, you know, you treat twice a day into lesion crusting or something, or the micromod is five times a week and they come in little packets and you have to explain to the patient that, you know, save those packets and don't throw them out, you know. So again, it comes down to scenario, like how sophisticated is your patient? Are they going to be unhappy when their 12 packets of micromod run out in the middle of the treatment course versus having a tube of, of five FU? You know, all those things are, are things to consider. Um, you know, there certainly have been um, comparative studies for 5-FU and Amicomod. And my recollection, I think, is that the 5-FU is the one that currently comes out on top in a lot of different scenarios. I mean, a lot of it just depends on how, how it's been studied, right? Are you studying how the 5-FU, you know, are you using it the same duration as the Amicomod, you know, the same frequency, the same location? There's so many different confounders. So can you say with certainty that one is is absolutely better than the other one in all scenarios? No, you you know you just have these different options, and you get comfortable recommending one in one situation or another in a different one. I don't have any hard and fast rules, but I would say that the five FU is more convenient to prescribe, just because you don't have that packet to worry about, right? But everybody's different. Yeah, I think we're also just creatures of habit, so we tend to do the same thing again and again. Certainly, I think, you know, we we tend to form habits and residency and maybe continue. I've gotten more interested in the last couple of years with combining 5-FU with calcitriol. I saw that commented on in the review, not as much evidence as some of the other therapies, but it seemed like there was a conditional recommendation to consider that. Certainly, it's shorter duration than the usual 5-FU, so that might make it easier. Plus, presumably fewer side effects. Yeah, so there was no recommendation made about that. We did we did say it was a treatment of note just because of the lack of evidence there, right? I mean, the initial numbers look very, very promising for that combination. I and mean, if you look at the study, I mean, there was 
a huge difference between the the 5-FU plus calcipotriene versus just a 5-FU alone. But also the treatment duration was low. And you know, anytime I see a study where there's dramatic difference between one intervention and the other one, it always kind of raises alarm bells. Like, you know, if it's, if, if it's huge difference, you know, is it real, right? Is it biased or not? And the only way to know is to wait for more studies. So I, I think that we're still waiting for answers on that one. But it's certainly something of interest, and I have prescribed it, and I like it. And certainly, the time course for for using it is lower than than a typical course of just five FU alone. And it's just a matter of like getting it to your patient, right? It's two different medicines that they have to obtain. Insurance usually gives you a hard time about the calcipotriene, or you can get like a compounding pharmacy, and then you know that's that's its own type of thing too. That you have a, another discussion that's longer than just a single prescription. That you just hand to them, right? That's just that's in your scenario. When I prescribed it, I just use a compounding pharmacy and I know exactly how much it costs so I can mention that to the patient. But I think why it's been popular with me and maybe some other people is really the simplicity, shorter duration, which I think was why there was some excitement when Ingenol Mebutate Picado came out. But as we've seen, like I remember that coming out in New England Journal with impressive data, and now it's basically withdrawn from the markets. What happened with that medication and what do we learn about that? Yeah, that's a great example of what we we're just talking about. Like, you know, you see something that's really promising at first, but then more data becomes available and it doesn't look so good anymore. So yeah, I was withdrawn from the European market originally based upon unpublished data, which showed a higher incidence of skin cancers in a group that got the the enginomebutate over the placebo. So that's not good, right? The whole reason we're using the medicine is to reduce the incidence of skin cancers. So after the Europeans uh, withdrew from the market, obviously the FDA followed suit pretty soon after and the rest is history. <laughs> you know, like trying to remember, but generally I think it's a pattern that when data first comes out, especially when it's industry sponsored, it's going to be more positive signal than what the longer term data is going to show. And so... We should always assume that the effect will not be as strong as it's initially advertised as, but we don't expect that it's not only not going to work as well, but actually does exactly the opposite of what it's intended. <laughs> yeah, everything you're saying is exactly correct. I mean, under study conditions, those patients are motivated to, to use the medicine because they, they know they're going to be evaluated. They're coming back. They're being reimbursed by the company to participate in the trial. In a real-world scenario, like I said, you know, patients may not have the money to pick the prescription up. But something may happen. They're going to be they're not financially incentivized. And that comes down to like external validity, right? You have the study data, but in a real-world setting, it's going to perform differently. So yeah, the studies are usually best case scenarios. Uh, I think that's a great point that you're making. So we're talking more about the different field therapies. One, this wasn't in the review, I don't think, but do you advocate for consideration of chemo prevention with things like nicotinamide or acetretin? Should that be part of this conversation? <laughs> um, yeah, very good points. So one of our goals was to determine what treatments would be good for patients with immunosuppression. Unfortunately, there just wasn't enough data to really issue guidelines on that. And the nicotinamide, I'm sure you're aware of the, the recent New England Journal of Medicine uh, publication, which showed lack of signal, no efficacy. Again, another example of something that sounds really promising when one first comes out, but later data doesn't necessarily 
hold up. Yeah. In terms of chemo prevention, personally, I think the best way for chemo prevention is sunscreen, right? That's the best thing we can do. But obviously, most of the time we see people, they've already had a lifetime of sun exposure. So it may not be as beneficial as it could be. But studies do show that use of sunscreen, even at a, you know, an older patient population still does reduce a few, few AKs per, per study period, right? So it does have some benefit. Maybe not as much as we'd all like, but something. So yeah, it's it's interesting to consider all these different field therapies. I think it does seem like 5-FU seems to be more predominant, but I think everyone should be familiar with not only 5-FU and Miquelmod, photodynamic therapy is an option, which some people have access to, but also be aware, I guess, highlighting the things that have come out of favor, because I'm sure there are a lot of people still using some of these other things where we have new data that hasn't necessarily circulated into the zeitgeist. Moving on from field therapy to lesion therapy, our mainstay is liquid nitrogen cryotherapy. Of course, I mean, the stereotype of dermatologists, liquid nitrogen in both hands, freeze whatever we can get. You know, I've always been taught in residency beyond that we, you know, freeze a lesion for a few seconds, let it thaw, do it again. Is there any evidence that you're aware of that that actually works better? I saw that there was some comment about longer duration, like five seconds versus 20 seconds, 20 seconds is more effective. But what about that two, two freezing cycle? Yeah, I don't remember what the specifics are on like a double freeze cycle versus a single freeze cycle. There certainly have been studies done looking at duration of, of therapy. And as you might imagine, the longer you freeze something, the higher the efficacy. But on the other side of things, as we all know, the longer you freeze something, the higher the complication profile. So it's always f- trying to find that sweet spot between freezing it enough to get rid of the thing, but not enough to cause hypopigmentation or, or scarring or you know what have you. You'd ask like, what do you think the biggest misconception among dermatologists would be about AKs? And this does bring up a good point. And that's that there's very little evidence behind cryotherapy for AKs. The the guidelines had a strong recommendation for the use of cryotherapy, but it was a good practice statement, which means we didn't have enough evidence to say anything else about it. We could just say as, as a matter of good practice, we know this, this is likely to be beneficial, but we don't have the evidence to say for certain that it is. So we need more cryotherapy studies. There really isn't head-to-head cryotherapy versus the field therapies necessarily. Yeah, not that I remember saying, yeah. It makes me wonder... Maybe a little provocatively, let's say the reimbursements for pre-malignant destruction gets cut significantly, would the interest in cryotherapy over field therapies change? Yeah, I would imagine they probably would. <laughs> Economics is a big driver, but I think most of us, even if you were to say the reimbursement just basically covers your cost, I still think it would be a pretty popular treatment because most of us although we are economically driven, most of us still want to do what's in our patient's best interest. And if we have a treatment, we know it works well, it's well accepted, unless people are going to lose money doing it, I would imagine there's still going to be a hardcore group of people who are going to continue to use it. And I know I would be one. Yeah, I mean, I'm being sort of a devil advocate there, but you know, there's something very satisfying about no issue with compliance. It's just taken care of. And I think a lot of patients prefer that. And it's, it's nice to be over and done with, but, you know, 
it'd be nice also to know like what truly is the most effective treatment. If you knew that one way, if cryotherapy was not the most effective with real data, that could be useful. But uh, I guess we'll just have to wait for someone, maybe a listener to consider trying to do that kind of study. Another thing that I, I commonly see with patients that we're treating, you know, maybe during the year with liquid nitrogen, sometimes we're putting off the field therapies to the winter months or like after the holidays when there's less of a social calendar. Is that something that you recommend to patients or do you think that's being overcautious or what do you generally do? My experienced patients, that's exactly what they do. They know the deal, but for me, I'm a little bit more impatient. I should say, you know, if someone needs to field therapy, I just tell them to get started because I just feel like you're just going to keep pushing it off and pushing it off. And I just think it's better to get something going, but you're right. I mean, the summertime is more difficult and, but then the wintertime we have the holidays and, you know, some people prefer to get their PDT done, like in the, in the winter months. I think these are all valid approaches, but I just like to kind of check the box off when the patient comes in, right? It's something I don't have to worry about. If I just make the recommendation immediately, then I feel like I've done something. <laughs> as opposed to like, just wait for six months and then we'll see it back six months after that or something. I don't know. It just seems like it's just putting it off. Yeah. I think, I mean, I do sometimes target like January, like right after the holidays when they're not going to see anyone, but I think that's really the face. If it's other parts of the body, I probably would just say, just do it. Just get, put it on your arms. What have you just let's try to knock it out, but maybe I'm a little conservative and maybe I should be just pushing it and just trying to take care of it. Focusing back on the the course, which everyone should be checking out and the, the guidelines that were put together. What are the highlights here? What are the newest overall? Are there new recommendations or changes in recommendations compared to previous compilations? Well, this was the first one that was sponsored by the, the AAD. The Europeans have their own guidelines, but I think their recommendations are probably pretty similar to ours. I mean, if you look at the evidence and you have a reasonable group of people taking a look at it, the conclusions should be similar, right? I can't recall exactly what their specifics were, but I think they were not that different. Great. Well, I'm going to sum up here and thank you for your time, but are there any other take-home messages that you'd like to leave with our audience before we move on to Dr. Schlesinger? I would just say that there's a good body of evidence to show that what we do does decrease the incidence of actinic keratosis. There's another good body of evidence to showing that treatment of these lesions does reduce in the incidence of skin cancer and the need for Mohs surgery. There's a Weinstock study, I think, that showed that. So what we do matters and it benefits our patients. So I think we can all feel good about what we do every day and also about what the AD is doing for us. I mean, putting these guidelines together, I think is very helpful because if we didn't do it, someone else would, right? And it's better that this type of thing be assembled by, by dermatologists than big pharma or something. One question I meant to ask earlier in the review, it says that studies have said that actinic keratosis may turn into squamous cells at a rate of 0.1% to 20%. That's a really broad range. I've generally told patients less than 5% most likely or something like that. Do you have a number that you quote patients or how do we not know better than that? Yeah, it's the studies that have been done have not been great. They weren't really designed to kind of study what the probability of a single lesion turning into a skin cancer is. So the science is very soft. So we have this huge spectrum. Will it ever be any better than it is now? I doubt it. In terms of numbers, if pressed, I say it could be 1% per lesion per year type of thing. 
what I usually quote people. But like I said, it's not scientific at all. But people would like to hear something. And that's that's what I use. <laughs> I think we're all kind of waiting. We know that they can turn into something. So we want to adequately make sure that patients understand that this could turn into a cancer. We should treat it. But on the other hand, we don't want to use scare tactics. We don't want to worry people unnecessarily. So it's it's a tough balance. So I really appreciate the effort you as co-chair of this group did in organizing all this data and evaluating it. And definitely we're going to continue to urge people to check out this course in the AAD Learning Center on the management of actinic keratosis. Dr. Eisen, thank you so much for your time. And we'll be joined shortly with Dr. Schlesinger. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. And I also like to acknowledge the work of everybody else on the work group. It's certainly Dr. Schlesinger and I did some work, but everybody else contributed equally to this. And, and I think that was just because we have such a great organization with the AAD. I mean, so many talented people willing to contribute. But thank you so much for inviting me. Really been delightful speaking with you and have a great rest of your summer. Thanks to you and all the group. Welcome back to part two of our Dialogues in Dermatology episode focusing on the guidelines of care of actinic keratosis. We just had a great conversation with Dr. Eisen. And now I'm pleased to welcome our second guest, the other co-chair of the guidelines committee, Dr. Todd Schlesinger, who's a dermatologist in Charleston, South Carolina. He is the former editor of Dialogues in Dermatology, so we're very pleased to welcome him back. He's the co-chair of the guidelines committee, as I mentioned, and he's volunteer faculty at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Schlesinger, thank you very much for coming back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be back here on Dialogues. Yes, so uh, another thing to add about Dr. Schlesinger, he was the editor of Dialogues in Dermatology, so special privilege to have him back in humble ground. So in our first half of this conversation with Dr. Eisen, we were talking about the guidelines for managing actinic keratosis from all the different evidence, the different therapies, whether that's field therapy, whether that's lesion therapy, how to plan that, all the different considerations. In that context, I want to bring it back to what you teach in the course, which is more of a quality initiative focused approach. And why don't we start by just asking you what medical complexities are unique to treating actinic keratosis? Well, so actinic keratosis is, as we all know, is a very common condition that pretty much every dermatologist may see on a daily basis. So some of the things that come up from a complexities related aspect are, you know, the treatments themselves. So actinic keratosis is recognized as a chronic condition. So it requires ongoing management, ongoing treatment. Of course, the treatments that we deal with in the office are accompanied by discomfort. So they can be long-term. Some of them are accompanied by adverse events, adverse effects that patients have to deal with as their post-care goes as well. That can impact their lifestyle. It can impact their their work. And so patients have mixed feelings about the treatments that we offer, whether that be lesion-directed or field-directed treatments uh, offered in our practices. So there is no gold standard as sort of how to classify these treatments. You know, we have the guideline, which gives us some framework of uh, which treatments to choose for our patients and how to select those for the right patients. And there's also insufficient evidence when it comes to disease progression. The guideline specifically calls out, specifically doesn't produce a recommendation on the risk of progression to keratinocyte carcinoma. That wasn't the focus of the guideline, so maybe that's not. The research wasn't quite done in that area, but patients are very interested in, in preventing actinic keratosis from progressing to squamous cell carcinoma. 
So this is something of interest to all of us. There is also insufficient evidence to make recommendations for our patients. So we don't have good controlled trials when it comes to the complexities of treatment of AK, limited follow-up, and there's no clear studies to balance the benefits and harm of the treatment. So uh, that's kind of where there are some gaps in research, which gives us no standardized management approach to actinic keratosis. Yeah, definitely. I think you're making an important point that there is this gap, this lack of standardized treatment algorithm. There's a lot of different options. And so dermatologists and patients are forced to grapple together with how to manage this. How do you strategize? What is your approach to engaging patients in the treatment process of AK? Well, so one of the biggest gaps that was identified through, you know, their research and, and to produce this education activity was the lack of streamlined patient workflow or the lack of patient engagement in the process. This is also mentioned in some of the performance measures that we have for AK as well. Involving the patient when deciding the, to treat AK, how you're going to manage it, and then creating in-office streamlined workflow treatment workflows and protocols. So that's what we've sort of tried to do in this activity is create a framework by which this can be analyzed in someone's practice and potential gaps in the practice be identified and then addressed. So it's sort of a process improvement technique that we can sort of sort of take a look at our own practices and see, you know, are we engaging our patients well enough? Are we using a shared decision-making model when it comes to how we make decisions with our patients? And I, to the extent that I actually bring it up with my patients, I actually say, we're doing this together. This is a partnership. This is not the me show. This is not just the you show. It's, it's the us show. So I tell them that we try to tell them specifically what we're doing. And so that's really something I've learned from the process is a, still a gap in, in in not so much a care, but a gap in the process by which we get to the best outcome and endpoint for our patients. I feel like we're talking a little bit cerebrally, a little bit abstract, high level. Can you put it in terms of like an actual conversation with an actual patient? Like what's the situation where this would actually come up that in the back of your mind, you're thinking of a framework? So, you know, it comes up quite often, pretty much daily. So if I have a patient that comes in with, you know, for example, they have field AK, but they don't have severe field AK. They may have moderate field AK. So, you know, you've got those patients where you're going to be one end or the other. So, you know, the guideline makes a strong recommendation for the use of 5-4-year cell example for, for the field management of actinic keratosis, right? But you have those patients that come in that are kind of in the middle and they could go either way. Maybe cryosurgery alone would be would be adequate. Maybe cryosurgery plus PDT, or maybe you might use one of the newer therapies that's on the market now as well. That's where it really stands out where you tell the patient, you know, for example, you know, we have two main kinds of treatments. We can either treat lesionally with cryosurgery or whatnot, or we can treat field, and these are some of the choices, and these are some of the adverse events you would have. So instead of me just saying, this is what we're going to do, I really try to involve the patient in that decision-making process and ask them if there's any barriers that they may have that may prevent, you know, do they have, even a simple question, do you have dinner plans tonight? Do you, know, you do have social engagements coming up? We're going to go ahead and treat you potentially today with cryosurgery, which is going to leave you know, X, Y, Z uh, adverse event afterwards, and it's going to last for this long. So I think engaging the patient in that process, and then the other piece of it is trying to gauge their satisfaction with the outcome at a future visit. That's where you might ask them, how did that treatment do for you? 
not so much were you impacted, not just did it clear up, but did you lose time from work? Did you not go to an event because you had the treatment done or, or was everything fine? So those are the kind of sort of feedback loop we're looking for to just make sure that we're getting the best, you know, management and service we can. Do you have any experiences where patients have had negative experiences or that have had adverse events unexpectedly that have informed this approach? Well, I mean, we all have those patients with that have been treated with 5-FU, right? And if you use straight 5-FU, you're most likely going to have an adverse event that someone isn't going to like. So, you know, isn't so much I have those patients. I mean, I try to inform them, but you have a lot of patients that come in that are new that have had that treatment in the past. And so they've got a sort of a negative connotation about that treatment. And some of them have that about photodynamic therapy. Some of them have about cross-surgery. For example, I had a patient today that was came from another practice or out of town, and they had been treated with cross-surgery. And they still had a case on their face. And so we talked about it and I had to go ahead and proceed with some cross-surgery today. And when I did the cross-surgery and probably froze for three to five seconds, you know, they didn't want to cause hypopigmentation, the patient felt that was more than they'd had before. And I told them, I said, you probably were undertreated before. I said, they may have been treating them so lightly that you didn't get any outcome. So you went and had the treatment, but you didn't get results from that. So that's one of those situations where you see that. You also see people who have been sort of overtreated where they do have the adverse event of hypopigmentation where they've got white spots and they don't like that either. So we call all that out pretty clearly. And I think that's going through this process has helped me bring that to the patient in layman's terms as much as I can. So that way they really understand what they're getting into and what the, the benefits and risks are of the treatment that they're going to have. So obviously with this course, we're focused on actinic keratoses and our management of them with the guidelines. But it sounds like the ideas that you're bringing up are pretty broadly applicable to so many of our treatment algorithms and treatment plans. W would you say that's the case? Yeah, I think I would. And one thing that the educational activity sort of brings up is, is a process that you can sort of plan a process improvement measure for your office, and then you can run a small report on a small scale and sort of see if there's a gap you could decide hey we want to make this change you can study that did that work and then you can act on the outcome so that sort of mentioned is sort of a plan do study and act algorithm that you can identify a gap in your practice and and and, and measure the change you can collect data over a specific time period and then you can you know make a change in your practice and track the improvement so uh, there's a project planning forum that's sort of mentioned in the in the in the educational activity that I think would be helpful for physicians to use in their practices to see if they can identify gaps in in their shared decision making model within their practice and, and make improvements and hopefully that'll improve outcomes. So uh, you know these things apply to many aspects of our practice, not just actinic keratosis, but uh, the academy's been focused on this because we've had the most recent guideline and then focus update released in the past few years. So we're following up on that to try to help folks implement that into their practice. That's great. So I, I think what you're referring to was the PDSA cycle, right? Plan, do, yes. study, act, right? I, I wonder yes. if some of the listeners say that sounds great, like quality initiatives, love the idea, want things to go better with my patients but I'm already busy. I'm already 
cranking patients out, just trying to keep up with everything, all of the different requirements, all the different issues that come up with the practice. How am I going to find the time to add an extra thing, even though I know that it will be beneficial? I completely understand that. So this isn't something that necessarily has to be carried out as a formal process. Sometimes it can just be simply carried out as a thought to simply think instead of writing it out and completing the project planning form, which is a time consuming process to just think about that process within your practice. And I think being a practice owner and having to manage things like this on a daily basis in my practice, I'm always looking for ways to improve. Uh, how can we you know, do better at answering the phones? How can we do better at, at getting patients scheduled in a more timely manner? So we're always looking for ways to improve our, our you know, business model and to improve our patient care. So I think that's one, this is one of the things you can also do on a less formal scale. It may just be something you think about. Maybe you jot it down on a piece of paper and this is what I'm doing now. This is what I plan to try and see if I can do better. So, you know, I agree with that. And if you are keeping up with your board certification, there's practice improvement initiatives that can be done as well through that process that can be done as part of your maintenance of certification process that you can do what you kind of can do anyway you're already doing it, but I agree that it can be time consuming. So a less formal thought, if it brings up that kind of process in your thought, you can make improvements, even if they're smaller or you don't take a formal process. I think that's a great way to think about it in a busy practice. Well, thank you. I think that's, that's insightful. Just sort of playing devil's advocate, not saying that I don't think this is a, a great idea. It just, I, I know we all can get bogged down by stuff. So I want to wind this down. I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you for joining us. I want to ask, is there anything or what was surprising to you while putting the guidelines together? What, if anything, surprised you or was unexpected that you might not have anticipated before engaging with this? You know, I think the most surprising thing to me after formulating the clinical questions and doing the initial literature review was just the lack of, of larger, more standardized, randomized controlled studies that support the treatments that we do in practice. So there's lots of things that we do that are supported by a variety of different research, some of which is pooled data, some of which are randomized double-blinded controlled trials, uh, and some of which are just series of case reports, and some of which is supported by ex-US data. So I think that was something that, because of the volume of insufficient evidence, uh, you know, things we couldn't make recommendations on because of insufficient evidence, it really helped identify some gaps in research that can help us in the future to better standardize our management approach to actinic keratosis. So I think that's one of the more surprising things that I found. It wasn't something unexpected, but when you really dig into it, we don't have a lot of of the type of high quality studies that we sort of come to expect. So we come to expect when it comes to the medications that we have approved in this country for psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, you know, we all expect to have that formalized, double-blinded, duplicate trial registration study that we don't have a lot of that in actinic keratosis. So hopefully in the future, we'll see more of it. Yeah, I was bringing up this with uh, Dr. Eisen, but the wide spectrum percentage quoted on how many AKs progress the squamous cells. It'd be nice to have a, a more rigorously defined idea on that progression or simple things like does freezing an actinic keratosis with two cycles of liquid nitrogen really add much? It, I mean, it's generally taught to do that way, but you know, something as basic as that seems like wouldn't be that hard to do a study on that and yet it hasn't been done. So 
foundationally and then also large clinical trials for our medications, that would be really great so that, you know, it's such a common problem uh, that we can really be following the evidence. Exactly. I think there has to be incentive there to perform these types of studies on a larger scale. They obviously cost money to do and agreed that, you know, we need to, to do better and I think we can do better over time and hopefully we'll see more studies come out in the future and maybe those have to be supported in ways other than through the standard pharma. You know, maybe it's through grants and maybe it's through uh, government funding, NIH, whatnot. But I think these are important questions. This is a condition that is suffered by a large number of people. It costs a lot of money to take care of and treat. Uh, it's a chronic condition, so ongoing. So anything we, anything we can do to improve our treatments, reduce side effects, and then also learn more about progression to keratinocyte carcinoma will benefit us and our patients. Yeah, I think it will have to be investigator-initiated. I, I can't imagine industry wants to fund studies that could only come out to suggest that we shouldn't use their products, probably. So that's just something we're going to have to find some government-supported money for. And I know there are some researchers that are very interested in some of these topics, but I know there's always priorities we have to choose with limited time. So Dr. Schlesinger, I'm so appreciative of your time. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and I think I can speak for everyone. We say thank you for dedicating your time and service to co-chairing this committee, and thanks to everyone on the committee who contributed, both to you and Dr. Eisen and all of the members who chipped in and put out such an excellent paper. I'm Dr. Jules Lipoff. Join us next time in Dialogues in Dermatology, and please do check out the course on the guidelines on the AAD website. It should be free for members. You should check it out, and you can learn more about everything we've been talking about. Have a great day. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.